Welcome. My name is Caleb, and you are listening to the Vitamin C Podcast. So I won't have as much to talk about with this episode, at least with the movie that I'm going to be covering. So I'm going to talk about a few other things that are on my mind first, and they're all movie related. First off, the trailer for Zack Snyder's new sci-fi epic, Rebel Moon, just dropped this week. The week that I'm recording this, at least. By the time you hear this, it will have been about a full week since its release. And here's the thing. Those who know me really well know that I am a fan of Zack Snyder. Although he's very divisive as a filmmaker, some people think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and some people think that he kind of sucks. I'm in the camp where I think he is one of the great filmmakers working today. He's got a very unique visual language, and it happens to be one that I engage with and really enjoy. And my whole thing with judging filmmakers is typically, first and foremost, do I engage with their work? Do I connect on an emotional level? And whether that emotional level is just surface level as far as this is fun or this is entertaining, because there's some that I only connect with on that level where I say, you know what? I think they make fun, entertaining movies and nothing more than that. And that's perfectly fine. But then there are some where I connect on an even deeper emotional level, where I may connect intellectually with certain ideas that they play with, or I may connect on an emotional level in terms of, I feel I relate to the characters in their movies, and I feel moved in some way or another by the stories they tell or the way they tell their stories. But the other way that I sometimes judge these filmmakers is based on how their peers view them and how the people that work with them view them. And so from time to time, there will be these directors that get trashed on, but when you see what their peers have to say about them, it's nothing but praise. I remember having a conversation about Michael Bay with somebody years back, and it was somebody that wasn't too crazy over Michael Bay, and I felt they expressed themselves in a respectful manner but one that I wanted to combat a little bit because I said, okay, I get not liking his movies, but it is a preference thing more than a this guy's bad type of thing because his peers, some great filmmakers working today and Steven Spielberg being one of those guys, one of the greatest directors in history, if not the greatest blockbuster director of all time, Spielberg and a number of others happen to hold Michael Bay in very high regard as a director. They think he's really good at his job. Not that he produces really good artsy movies, but that he's really good at directing movies. And so, yes, he may direct movies that you don't like or that you can't engage with, but he does know what he's doing behind the camera. And I hate to bring up Michael Bay and Zack Snyder in the same conversation because people compare them only for one reason, because they'll say, oh, they're both guys who can't tell a good story, but they've got great visuals and action. Incredibly surface level take. Incredibly. Because the difference is that Michael Bay has a few movies where he actually does something emotional, where he has some human themes involved that go a little bit deeper. 
or he plays with ideas that most of his other movies don't because a lot of his movies are just popcorn fun. And I think they're some of the best movies ever when it comes to popcorn flicks. If the most important metric in popcorn flicks is how entertaining is this movie, which that is kind of the most important metric in a popcorn flick, then I think he has made some of the very best ever in that regard, for me at least. But Zack Snyder, on the other hand, actually goes way deep with his movies where there will be some visual imagery that is linking to some mythological stuff or some stuff deep in English literature and just crazy, crazy stuff that most directors don't even play with unless they're doing some type of indie movie. But he'll make these huge blockbusters where on their surface, they're fun movies but they'll be laced with these visuals that have all of these double meanings and that somehow connect all of his films. Like That's another thing that I can't even get into, but if you go into the mythology of his films, you can draw a straight line through several of his movies. There are parallels through several of his movies of overlapping themes and recurring concepts and things like that. And I'm kind of rambling about this, but I'm just saying that his movies are rich with detail which is not something that you typically find in a blockbuster movie. They're usually very basic films as far as this is the plot, this is the threat, here's some fun stuff that will string throughout the movie to keep people entertained, and then we'll have the big bang in the third act of the film, and everyone's going to love it. Throw in a few laughs, throw some action scenes in, a few sexy people either shirtless or half naked, and people will like it. But Zach's unique in that he has these strong commercial instincts with how he shoots this stuff where he knows what looks good and he knows what people want to see. But then he's got this weird brain where he just ends up packing his movies with all this symbolism and mythology and detail. And I just love the amount of care he puts into them because they become so rewatchable for me and so fun to talk about. And look, again, I'm not going to go fully into detail because I could talk about some of his movies like Batman v Superman. I could talk about that movie for probably a full three hours on a podcast if I wanted to. I could go the full length of the movie breaking down a few aspects of it that are just incredibly fascinating. But fact is, I think he is a very fascinating filmmaker and there are a lot of filmmakers working today that hold the same opinion of him. Christopher Nolan is a huge fan of Zack Snyder's movies. He's also a huge fan of Michael Bay's movies, funny enough. James Cameron is a huge fan of Zack Snyder's movies. Dan Trachtenberg, who did 10 Cloverfield Lane and the movie Prey, is a fan of Zack Snyder's movies. Scott Derrickson talks about Watchmen all the time as one of his all-time favorite movies and his favorite adaptation. He brings it up constantly. Then you got Stephen DeKnight, who was the showrunner for the first season of Daredevil, talked about how Snyder was a major influence on how they did their show and how he shoots his stuff. So just a lot of incredible filmmakers and storytellers that have been inspired by his work and that hold him in high regard. So when people are low on him, I sometimes just think, okay, I think it's okay if you personally don't connect with his movies. But I think you're being unfair when you pretend he's not good at what he does because people who do this for a living seem to really connect with his work and engage with it. So maybe there's something that you're missing that they are not. 
it's kind of like I'm a huge basketball fan and I love the Phoenix Suns. My favorite player is Devin Booker. And the thing is, Devin Booker for years was playing really good basketball on teams that never had good records because the other players were pretty terrible. But because of that, the narrative was always that Devin Booker was not actually good. I'm serious. That was a debate for years. And it's crazy to think now for people who follow basketball, because he's considered one of the best in the NBA, like a top 10 player, debatably. But for years, people talked about him like he wasn't that good in the media. And I always thought, are you guys not watching the same player? But then I would see the best players in the NBA, LeBron James, Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, constantly talking up Devin Booker and saying how he's next up, man. He's the next star in this league, one of the new faces of the league. And so I remember always thinking, okay, who cares what these people in the media have to say? Because the very best in the league, some of the all-time greats that are currently in the league think that this guy's really good and that he's next up. And so that's where I found peace with some of the filmmakers that I really enjoy that don't get great reviews on their movies or that have just nasty things attached to their names when you go on Reddit threads or Twitter comment sections or anytime there's a Michael Bay related or a Zack Snyder related post, you'll just see a lot of vitriol and hate in the comments. But I've been able to just ignore it because to me, I always say, well, first off, I enjoy it and that's all that really matters. But secondly, the best filmmakers in this industry think that these guys are really good at what they do specifically. That alone is kind of enough for me to feel validated where I say, well, I connect with this. I see the art here and so do these other guys that are the best of the best. But anyway, that was a bit of a tangent there. Point is, I'm a fan of Zack Snyder. I really think his work is fascinating. I think he's a great director. And this new movie, Rebel Moon, they said they were dropping a teaser and ended up being a three and a half minute trailer. Because when you hear teaser, I'm thinking like a minute long or a minute and a half long. Nothing too crazy. They're not going to show too much. But this was a three and a half minute long trailer for Rebel Moon Part 1 and Part 2 which Rebel Moon, some people are saying, is Zack Snyder's Star Wars trilogy. Which, yes, he did pitch it to Star Wars, but an important distinction to make is that this was not written to be a Star Wars movie. This was written to be a sci-fi epic, and it was inspired by stuff like Dune, Star Wars, all the great sci-fi projects throughout the years. Yes, he drew inspiration from those, And that's why when he pitched Rebel Moon to Warner Brothers and they weren't interested, he then pitched it to Disney and said, I could make this into a Star Wars movie. It didn't have to be, but he could have just tweaked a few things here and there and it could have existed in the Star Wars universe. But they didn't bite on it either. And I understand it if I'm Lucasfilm because it's a Disney owned production company at this point in time. And there is a certain standard to Disney movies where you can't really get too explicit. You can't show too much of certain things. You can't be too violent. So a guy like Zack Snyder, who has made all R-rated or hard PG-13 movies, that's of Owls of Gahul, which I believe is PG. But all of his movies are either R-rated or they're PG-13 with a pretty heavy PG-13 rating where there are sometimes even R-rated director's cuts with them. So 
I understand why you wouldn't want that if you're Lucasfilm. And I'd also understand that you wouldn't want that based on the divisiveness of his movies and you're trying to connect with your new fans or you're trying to build a new generation of Star Wars fans. So it may be too much of a gamble to bring in a guy like Zack. And so I think it's best for both parties that they didn't end up working together. I think it's the best case scenario for both parties involved. But now, years later, he's in a happy environment working at Netflix, and he's getting to make what he wants to make. So that's pretty awesome. And look, the trailer to this movie was amazing. It looked so immersive. It captured these sci-fi elements, but also these fantasy elements, because I said, this is stuff I would expect to see in some high fantasy movie. But then you've also got stuff that's just hardcore sci-fi. And you guys know I love sci-fi, but as somebody that also grew up on Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, I read the Percy Jackson books, that fantasy side of stuff is fascinating to me. And knowing Zach, knowing how much he loves mythology and how much that influences his work, I'm just really excited for this movie. And they had Anthony Hopkins narrating the trailer. He plays Jimmy the robot in the movie. And man, visually, it looked gorgeous. Just absolutely stunning. The dialogue from Anthony Hopkins' character was great. And he's just got a perfect voice for narration. So I was incredibly hyped. The trailer far exceeded my expectations. And I just can't wait. I hope it gets a proper theatrical release. I know it's Netflix and they typically only do a week-long release, but I hope it has enough showtimes and I hope it's being shown on big enough screens where it's worth putting it out there. And I hope people see it because it looks incredible. And I thought, how great is it that we no longer have Dune? I'll talk about it in a second. But we have these other original sci-fi movies like The Creator and Rebel Moon coming out this year. And Dune's not original. It's just that it's not part of this massive cinematic franchise. It's not Star Wars or Star Trek. It's not Marvel or DC. It's a book adaptation that they failed to make decades ago. But I will talk about Dune Part 2 also because they delayed that. It was supposed to have a full six weeks, I think, to itself in IMAX. And now all of those screens are going to the Marvels, which is the Captain Marvel sequel, I guess is what you would call it. And look, that movie looks perfectly fun. There's nothing wrong with that movie getting big screens, but Dune Part 2 was shot for IMAX. I mean, come on, dude. But instead, Dune is going to release next year and is probably going to be lucky to get three weeks in IMAX. I imagine it'll get two weeks in IMAX. And hey, great, two weeks, but you could have had six weeks. You know how much money you could make with six weeks of IMAX? It's bonkers, dude. It's bonkers. I'm just frustrated by these strikes because I completely stand behind the writers and the actors that are striking. They have every right to do it. But my frustration is with the studios who are being so greedy. The demands are so simple. And at this point, the studios aren't even saving themselves money by holding out this long from the actors and writers' demands. They're going to lose money from this and still probably end up caving in the long run. Right now, they're just holding out out of spite. 
That is all it is. They are holding out until I guess they're just hoping that the writers and actors quit striking, which that's not going to freaking happen. But it's an unfortunate situation. And again, I stand with the writers and the actors, but it's just unfortunate that these studios are so greedy. So I'm hoping that it gets resolved soon, but I do not have high hopes that that will happen. Anyway, I've rambled long enough. You guys might be tuning in because I said I was talking about the movie Retribution, which you may be thinking, what's retribution? Not what does the word mean, but what is the movie? Yeah, good question. I didn't see a single advertisement to it until maybe a week before its release. I never saw a trailer to it in theaters. I think I just randomly saw a TV spot for it, and I said, huh, I haven't even heard about this movie. And because the other movies I wanted to see, I wasn't able to see, I keep wanting to see that Dracula boat movie, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, but it's all morning showtimes, and I work, dude. I can't go see it in the morning. So I'm waiting until there's a showtime I can actually attend for that one so I can talk about it. But yeah, I saw this Liam Neeson movie Retribution, which is a remake of a Spanish film of the same name. And while watching this movie, I thought this is a solid concept for a good movie, but I can't imagine this was a great movie. And sure enough, I looked up the reviews. The actual original version of this movie is considered to be okay. It's not even considered to be that good. So I thought, why are you remaking a Spanish film that wasn't even considered to be that good? It was considered to be decent, like a solid thriller, you know, but it wasn't considered to be a great movie. And so I'm thinking, if you're going to steal someone else's movie and remake it, do an American remake, why not pick one that's really good? (laughs) I don't know. I guess I can see the appeal of taking something that was a good concept but not executed that well and saying, we could make it even better and we'll put Liam Neeson in the movie and that alone will make it better. But here's the synopsis that you'll find on Google. It says, while driving his two kids, a man receives a phone call from an unknown assailant who claims there is a bomb in the car. Unable to exit the vehicle, he must now follow a series of twisted instructions while trying to figure out how to survive. Yeah, so Liam Neeson is this dad and he seems really busy with work and the wife is kind of frustrated with it, but she said, hey, you told me you'd take the kids to school today. And so he kind of has this hassle of even getting his kids in the car, even though they're grown pretty much. I mean, the son is played by Jack Champion, who is Spider in Avatar The Way of Water. And then he's in Scream 6. I don't remember his character's name in Scream 6. But his son's played by Jack Champion, and he's got to be 17, 18 years old in this movie if he's still in high school. He's a very old high schooler. But for some reason, Liam Neeson's like, in the car. He's like, no, dad, make me. You know, that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, how old are you, dude? (laughs) And then he's got a daughter who, I don't know, I'm not good with ages when it gets that low. We'll just say she's like 10. She's probably older than that now that I think about it. But I don't know. I'm not good with kids' ages. And it never specifically says how old she is. So I'll just say she's young. She's probably anywhere from 10 to 12 years old. But yeah, Liam Neeson gets in the car, his daughter gets in the car, but the son is walking. And the second he gets in the car, you see this thing turn on under his seat. And the movie also opened with like this bomb blowing up in a car with no context. You just see a guy sitting in his car and then the car blows up. And I thought, well, that was a weird way to open the movie, but okay. 
just some random guy sitting in a Tesla and it blows up. But yeah, Liam Neeson drives down the street a little bit and then picks up his son who's walking and he's like, get in the car, get in the car, get in the car. Son won't get in the car. And then finally he gets in the car. And then he starts getting a call from this random phone that is in his car and it doesn't belong to anybody in the car. And it's a call from an unknown number. And this unknown number has this voice on it. And it's obviously a modulated voice, but it's a voice telling him to do all these things or they say they will blow his car up. And at first he thinks the guy is kind of messing with him. And then he ends up taking it pretty seriously. And he ends up being driven all over the city as all this crazy stuff is happening. And honestly, it's a decent idea for an action thriller, not necessarily heavy on the action. It is more on the thriller side, but it's just kind of generic. It's an interesting idea, and it plays out with just no flavor necessarily. The only element that this movie has that it maybe wouldn't have if it was made by somebody else is just that it's got Liam Neeson. But the problem with Liam Neeson is that he's a great actor who has done so many subpar, just completely mediocre action movies over the last decade that all of his characters blend together now. Anytime I see him in a movie, it just doesn't really move me anymore because he's played this character or something like it so many times in a movie just like it. So there's never anything interesting about his performance. He's just Liam Neeson at this point. I've just accepted that this is who he is on the big screen these days. It's unfortunate because he is a very talented actor. He's just doing these movies and I guess they pay well, but it's a shame. So this movie doesn't really provide great thrills There's kind of a twist in the movie and it doesn't even make sense necessarily because like I said, this voice thing is telling him to go to different places and there are a couple people he drives to and he sees their cars blow up and it's other people that he worked with or that he knows pretty well. And the big plot twist, sorry to spoil the big plot twist of a Liam Neeson movie that I'm sure you guys were all going to see. But a big plot twist in the movie is that one of the guys that get blown up in their car, they don't actually die. It was all staged so it would seem like they were dead because there's something that passes by right when the bomb goes off. So I guess they got out of their car in record time and away from the explosion like James Franco in Spider-Man 3. Remember that scene where he's in the diner and it's after him and Peter talk to each other, but Peter looks back at him and he looks back at Peter, shoots him a wink, and then a car goes by this diner to block him from view for maybe a second. And the second the car is gone, so is James Franco's character, Harry Osborne. Harry's gone in like a second. Where did he go? How did he move that fast? But yeah, it's kind of something like that. The guy would have had to do a disappearing act of that level. And Harry Osborne, I can forgive because... He is on that Green Goblin juice, you know? He's all roided up or whatever with the Green Goblin serum. But the guy in this movie? Nah, he's kind of old. No way he could move that fast. But also, this guy is talking to Liam Neeson on the phone during this scene, pleading for his life, saying, please don't do this, because he's acting as though he thinks Liam Neeson's doing it. And not at a single point does Liam Neeson say, hey, this isn't me doing this. He's just doing exactly what the guy is telling him to do in his ear. I'm thinking, hey, you could at least say it's not you. Like, that's not a problem. But yeah, the guy's pleading for his life. And while he's doing that, there's the voice coming through on the other end saying, you got to do this and this and giving instructions. But it's supposed to be the same guy. 
you find out at the end that the person on the phone giving instructions is the same guy that gets fake blown up who he's on the phone with at that part. So I'm thinking, how's he talking through two different lines? We're looking right at this guy. We would see if he was saying other stuff because they're maybe 50 feet away from each other at this point in time. But he's holding two conversations simultaneously. And I swear he talks at the same time from both his phone and the burner phone that he's calling through. So I don't get it. He's got to be the most skilled ventriloquist of all time, in which case his talents are being wasted in this movie. And you know, I kept expecting this movie to have a big plot reveal of, oh, Liam Neeson's actually this bad guy and there's all this stolen money. There's this big conspiracy and the person that's doing this is somebody that he wronged in some way or another, but it ends up being much less than that. And it kind of leads you to think Liam Neeson's this terrible guy, but at the end of the day, he's not really that bad. He's fine. Him and a work partner stored a bunch of money on some offshore account, but I was just thinking, okay, who hasn't? Who hasn't? If you're making millions and you don't have an offshore account, what are you doing, man? You're just going to get taxed with all that money? Come on, be smarter. I'm not trying to encourage people to break the law. I'm just saying that it's not like his character did anything that deserved being driven around a city with a bomb in their car. But that was the other thing is that he breaks so many laws in this car throughout the movie And it's not until maybe a whole 50 minutes into it that the police are even on him. Like, I don't know how many stars he would have if he was playing GTA, but it would have to be quite a few because he commits a hit and run. He is present during a terrorist attack and all this stuff. And they have him on camera. They have his cars, make and model. They know what he looks like. And it's not until really the late second act that there's any police presence or anyone even trying to catch him. And I thought that's really odd. But yeah, overall, this was a not great thriller. It was mostly watchable. And then the last half hour of it was just so dull. There weren't really any great twists or big reveals. It just was fine. Also, they had Harry Gregson Williams as a composer for this movie. And he's a really good composer. But the score was just fine. It was average. Nothing special. So overall, this is just a movie that probably could have been at least an okay thriller, at least like a 7 out of 10 movie, and I wouldn't even give it that. It was just bland all around. There wasn't anything in it that would make me say, oh, you got to see this, or oh, you got to check this out. It wasn't bad at any point, I would say, even though the dialogue wasn't great. And some of the acting wasn't stellar, I suppose, but it was mostly just that the screenplay was weak. And the direction was really weak too. So it just made for a bland, uninteresting movie by the end of it. Despite having a solid enough premise. So it's kind of unfortunate. I hope Liam Eason is more selective about the projects he chooses. But I think at this point, he's kind of just taking movies that are fun to make that pay him well. So I guess good for him, but bad for members of the general audience. Anyway, that's all I've got for today. I appreciate you guys tuning in. The next time you hear from me, there are a couple movies I could be talking about and I haven't decided which one it will be yet. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you are not already, please give this podcast a follow on whatever you are listening on right now. And also give this podcast a follow on Instagram under the username at vitamin C pod. You'll find updates both on this podcast and on the movie business in general. So again, Thanks for tuning in. You'll hear from me later this week.